son, there's a lot of things that you don't understand about this world yet. Uh, he said, hunker down, learn to play the game, get wise, and then when you're ready, do what you were born to do. And that was actually the last thing he ever said to me. He, uh, he passed away a few weeks later of a, of a heart attack. Helping people build ambitious and satisfying careers, businesses, and lives. This is the Influence Ecology Podcast. Now, here is your host, John Patterson. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. I am your host, John Patterson, the co-founder and CEO of Influence Ecology. We are the leading business education in transactional competence. Broadcasting from Ojai, California, this is the podcast for you, the ambitious professional who simply wants an advantage. And now you won't settle for an ordinary life. You want real results, real satisfaction, not just at work, not just in your career, but in every area of your life. Our primary feature today is an interview with Troy Frost, the CEO and co-founder of Syntegrity. This is a company whose mobile security software is getting a lot of buzz. It uses behavioral biometrics to keep the bad guys off your device and away from your data. It's helping large enterprises reduce costs and threats. Troy's father's last words are a mantra he's lived by throughout his successful entrepreneurial journey. His business bio reads like a movie character who suffered not for being dull, but for being way too smart. He, like most entrepreneurs, sought his freedom and isolation away from the rules of the crowd, but found out that how you succeed is to surround yourself with lots of really smart and really talented people. He's got a great story to tell, and he answers the question, how do you make $30,000 a month in personal income? After the interview, we're going to take you inside to share a talk from co-founder Kirkland Tibbles. Now, Troy's been a member with Influence Ecology for a little over five years, and Troy, welcome. Uh, tell us a little bit about Syntegrity. Well, Syntegrity, is a, we're a mobile, uh, mobile device security software company, and we, we uh, specialize in something called behavioral biometrics. And uh, for those of you who are familiar with biometrics, if you have a smartphone with a fingerprint scanner on it, when you, you, know, you put your finger up to the phone, it knows who you are based off of your fingerprint or your iris or your facial uh, features or whatnot. We do that, but on a behavioral level. So we, we can measure uh, with a, an extreme degree of accuracy uh, who you are based off of how you use your device. So things like the, the angle that you hold it, uh, the time of day, that you access your data, even the electromagnetic fields that you frequently walk through <laughs> throughout your day. All, all of that wow. kind of combines together to create a unique picture of your behavior and how you use your device. And it's not something that, that I can steal from you like a password, uh, and it's certainly something that I can't easily replicate. That's fantastic. That sounds rather James Bond-like. Um, and I gotta tell you that your autobiography reads like a movie character who simply who simply doesn't fit in and not because he's daft or ugly or clueless but quite the opposite the quote that you use in your autobiography is by Mark Twain I have never let my schooling interfere with my education yep tell us about that <laughs> well I, I I have never uh, liked school I I, I just 
never really worked out very well for me. Um, I was kind of a bit of an awkward kid. Um, I was a when I was younger, my teachers, uh, there's one particular teacher that really kind of turned me off uh, to, to uh, you know, your traditional academic <laughs> processes. Uh, it was an English teacher, and I believe she was in uh, sixth grade, seventh grade, something like that. But at the time, I was, you know, this was in the 90s. I was a kid with baggy pants and bleached blonde hair and not exactly the most uh, studious person, um, but I did I did tend to gravitate towards uh, math and science classes. I did very well excelled, was in advanced placement in those courses. But um, you know, I had one teacher who uh, it was an English teacher, and she she accused me of plagiarism. You know, and I, I wrote this story. I was very proud of it. I don't remember exactly what the the topic was, but I do remember putting an awful lot of work and effort into it. And she just kind of gaslighted me into believing that this wasn't mine so i just i, I said yeah okay I, I stole it and ever since then I've, I've just dumbed down my assignments because apparently i did not conform to <laughs> my my academic performance was not uh, uh congruent with my appearance uh, or behavior yeah so I, I i just i never really fit in school um i never really even in college when i when i went to college i didn't really fit in there actually i actually dropped out of high school. I never graduated high school. Uh, I, <laughs> I actually left to pursue a career in professional skateboarding, if you can believe that or not, uh, which obviously didn't pan out. But uh, I'm glad it didn't. <laughs> Otherwise, yeah. I wouldn't be here today. Absolutely. And, and uh, on the note of your high school, I, I love the story in your autobiography about, uh, you know, you, you got to a point where you wanted to drop out of high school and, you know, your parents said what? Uh, well, they said I, they were very, very reluctant to allow me to drop out of high school. Uh, they, they, they said the only, the only way we're going to allow you to do that is if you get your your GED, your general education degree, which is a high school equivalency. And I think they were thinking that this would be a more relaxed environment for me to pursue uh, my own studies, and that I would, you know, I'd take these adult classes with people who were older than me. And, and that was another thing is. When I was a kid, I hung out with people who were much older than me. Even to this day, uh, I have a business partner who's in his late 60s. I consider him one of my closest friends. Mm. Uh, and <laughs> so, of course, I agreed to that, and I had my own plan in my head. Uh, and the day that, that uh, they signed the paper, I, I remember that very, very fondly. Uh, it was like I was free. And I think I mentioned in the autobiography that you know I've never been arrested or incarcerated, uh, but I imagine that, that being freed from prison was an awful lot like uh, what it felt like when uh, when I was released from my high school requirements. So that same day, uh, I skateboarded over to the Adult Education Center, <laughs> and I kind of was met with a similar sort of disdain because obviously I didn't look like I belonged there. Yeah. And they said, "Oh, yeah, you know, it's a lot harder to get your GED than it is to get your to get your high school diploma. People graduate and they can't read. You got to take all these classes, and it's going to be so much harder." And I said, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just give me the damn test." So, mm. so they gave me the test, and I aced it that day. The day I dropped out of high school, I graduated, and I was That's a free man. Amazing. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. So. Since since we're really here talking about y your entrepreneurial journey, how does this 
early time shape who you become as an entrepreneur? You know, that's that I think my parents had the most significant influence on me. They were both small business owners. Uh, my father was a, an ex-military guy who, who started a machine shop. He was a machinist uh, down in Texas. And my mother was an aspiring uh, architect. And uh, she was so good at the time when, when she was younger. Uh, she was actually one of the first women in the United States to get an unsecured loan from the bank, a business loan. Uh, without uh, needing a man as a co-signer, of course, back in back in the '60s, that was unheard of. You know, woman yeah. getting a loan to start a business, <laughs> crazy. But she did, uh, and uh, she uh, she was in a lot of magazines and whatnot. So the, the entrepreneurial spirit runs very deep in my family, and I was raised very differently. And I noticed this when I was a child too. I was raised very differently than than my peers. I had so much more freedom than they did. And you know the only the only real requirements were uh, for me to uh, you know bring home good grades and don't bring home any kids. That was basically it. <laughs> <laughs> Everything else fair uh, game. Uh, and uh, so I, you know I didn't ever had a curfew. I, you know, I I think uh, the way that they raised me uh, had a significant impact. And you know they never told me no. Hmm. So when I was a child, if I wanted something it was what's your plan to raise the money and, and and there's one event in particular that that really instilled this sense of entrepreneurial spirit in me when i was 13 years old i had a, a wealthy friend named dj and uh my family we were not well off at all i mean we were not middle middle class you know, we weren't starving but we were by no means uh wealthy and dj he had all the coolest toys, and one one year when I was 13, his father bought him, for his birthday, a dirt bike, and we rode the wheels off of this thing. Mm. All summer long, we, we, we found a, a, a junkyard area, and we'd build ramps and compete to see who could jump the, the, the longest and, and, and the highest, and that summer was, was a defining moment in my life because when my birthday came around, of course, I went to my father and said, "Hey, Dad, can I can I have a dirt bike for my birthday?" And of course, at the time, that was completely outside of of our means. Uh, he didn't tell me no. He said, "Sure. What's your plan to raise the money?" Mm. And, I said, and I said, "What do you mean? What's my plan? My plan was to ask you." <laughs> <laughs> and, and he sat me down, and, and you know, as an adult looking back at this, I think he was trying to reason with me at the time. Uh, he, we did the math, and he showed me, okay, uh, this, this is we inventory our skill sets. What can you do to to make money? We settled on lawn care as a you know as a viable option, and then we figured out a price and and uh, showed me how to calculate my costs and overhead and what it would take. And I don't remember how many lawns it would have taken me to mow. It was some ridiculous number. Uh, like, you know, 500 months or something like that. And I think he was trying to show me uh, through evidence that uh, this was just beyond us. This is, you know, this is just something that, that we can't do. And, and I certainly did not take it that way. Uh, I immediately set out, uh, for, and from morning till night, that entire summer, uh, I was, I think, 12 to 16 hours a day doing lawn care. And by the end of the summer, uh, I had even 
hired some of my friends to help me uh, in this endeavor. So I, I'd pay them like 50% of what I was bringing in, you know, minus the overhead and all this sort of thing. And they thought it was great because I had more work than I could handle and they were making money and I was making money and everything was great. So at the end of the summer, a 13-year-old kid in the 90s, I, I had amassed a, a small fortune of $1,000, which was quite a bit of money, still a lot of money to this day. But it was still not enough to purchase the dirt bike. It wasn't about, about half of what it would take to, to buy the bike that I wanted. And uh, I, I think that my parents were uh, concerned that, that <laughs> my new entrepreneurial venture might interfere with my schoolwork because the fall was coming and we're going back to school and I was already talking about raking, yard, raking leaves and, and shoveling snow and all this sort of thing. Uh, that uh, my dad said, okay, look, <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lend you the rest of the money to, to buy this bike, uh, but you have to pay me back uh, it, it, over time. And I said, oh, of course. So that day we went down to the, uh, to the Honda dealership. I remember, I remember it like it was yesterday, riding in the back of my dad's Chrysler minivan. We had pulled the seats out so we could wheel the, the dirt bike in there. And uh, on the way home, uh, I, I just I remember the sense of accomplishment that I had and I think that was the moment when I realized that if you want something bad enough and you're willing to work at it and and and, and put in the, your you know your blood sweat and tears into it uh, and and honestly elicit the help of the people around you that pretty much anything that you want is attainable and I, and I, I earned that bike you know, DJ didn't earn his bike, and the next year he was on to the next thing because his parents just gave him whatever he wanted. But I was still on that bike. That bike stayed with me for years. Mm. Uh, now I now I own five motorcycles, but <laughs> to this day I'm still in the motorcycles. Yeah. That's fantastic. Well, uh, so you were 13 around that time, and you're how old now? Uh, 35. 35 years old. God, I'm jealous. All right, so 35 years old. Uh, so, how come? How come influence ecology? Well, honestly, I I was referred to influence ecology by a trusted friend. Uh, it was a, a good friend of mine. Said, "Hey, you know, he was in, he was in the ecology, and his aunt was in the ecology. Uh, she referred him, and he said, hey, I think you should do this.'" This is, you know, at the time I was already fairly successful. Uh, I, I, we were, I think, four years into level nine, so things were growing. Uh, I was, admittedly, extremely naive, uh, especially about money. Uh, I really didn't know how to how to manage the money that I was making, so I just kind of blew it on everything. Uh, mm. But but he talked me into doing it, and uh, I've been here ever since. So how come? Uh, you know, I, I the reason I ask is because uh, you know I keep going back to this quote about I never let my schooling interfere with my education, and and you're sort of, you know, you're not you're not a traditional guy. You're you're you know you don't follow the masses. You're you know you're a bit of a renegade in all kinds of ways, and a hacker, and a skateboarder, <laughs> you know all that kind of stuff, and a motorcycle. So you know, and here we are, here we are in in this education. This is a very unique kind of education. We teach transactional competence. How how come you're participating here, and how come transactional competence? Well, I, I think uh, for transactional competence, the 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 thing that always pops into my mind when I think of why why transactional competence is, I see it as a bit of a force multiplier. 
So for me, at least, uh, it has helped me accelerate virtually every aspect of uh, positive aspect of my life and really helped me uh, shed many of the negative uh, negative aspects. Uh, why why influence ecology? I think honestly, I really like the way that that you guys teach. It's it's there's it's very much a you're you're on your own. It's your responsibility. I've always believed your your education is what you make it uh, and what you put into it. And I think the the freedom that influence ecology allows to to apply the, the concepts uh, to your offer in your own way really appeals to me because I, I've always been a bit of a try first, ask questions later kind of person. Mm-hmm. I know that's shocking to those of you who know me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but you know, di- diving in head first into something and, and influence ecology pr- creates an environment where that is uh, not only encouraged but celebrated. And I think that's a very, very valuable thing. I think it's something that's missing from e- education academia today. Uh, and I, I just, I, I love the way you guys work. That's great. And so if you think about people listening, so uh, you know the kinds of questions people often ask you about you and what you do and and how you got to where you are. Um, What are some of those questions and what are your answers? Well, a lot of people ask me about what it it was like when I first struck out on my own uh, and, and seriously first struck out on my own. Uh, and uh, <laughs> I always respond with, it was a catastrophic failure. It was absolutely <laughs> total failure. <laughs> mm. I was, uh, at, at the time, uh, I, had, I had sustained, when I was 17 years old, is when I started my first real company. I had uh, suffered a career-ending injury uh, to my right ankle at a skateboarding competition in Plymouth. And I was, at the time, I was skating in the Pro-Am circuit, which, which is basically it's sort of like a probationary period where uh, you skate with professional skateboarders. In mind if, if any of you are aware it was Team Zero or with Jamie Thomas, if you remember those days. Uh, I was skating with them as though I was a professional, but I wasn't getting paid, right? So I'd still make videos and still, you know, and, and I didn't have, sh- you know, shoes or boards or any kind of, you know, merchandise deals or anything like that. But once you turn pro, then all those sorts of things start coming. And then, you know, if you're really good, then you turn into, you know, Tony Hawk or Ben Margera or, you know, one of those household names. Uh, but I, I, I suffered a career-ending injury uh, about a week before I had heard rumors that I was going to be extended a contract. And that was very, very devastating to me because I had quite a bit invested in this uh, in this whole skateboarding career, professional athletic career. And uh, I basically just kind of sat around my house and played video games for a year, <laughs> uh, kind of wallowing in my own depression there. I kind of got the bug in my head, like, you know what, I want to do something. I want to do something different and do something, create something. So I was convinced at the time, and I know this is going to sound crazy to people on the, <laughs> on the call, I was convinced that that there was this new thing called the World Wide Web that came out. I was convinced that this was going to be big and that people would buy books online. I know, completely nuts. (laughs) So so I created this thing called a website. Nobody knew what that was. That was back when people still read HTTP colon slash slash when they gave you a URL. 
I, so I started uh, an online retailer uh, or an online publishing company that specialized in in uh, health books because I thought, you know, what better thing to, to market to people than a health book, something about your health, how to improve your health. And I was a fit guy at the time, you know, minus the whole ankle injury thing. And I didn't sell a single book. <laughs> I, I even resorted to, to hijacking AOL chat rooms. Uh, if you remember those or Prodigy CompuServe yeah. chat rooms back in the day, and, and I would I would promote my stuff in the chat rooms, and people would just tell me to scram. And I didn't sell a single book, and I, I sunk literally every dime I had into developing the site and and buying the inventory. And uh, it was a it was a total catastrophe. My my girlfriend at the time, uh, she was headed off to college. I think she was going she was at uh, Ball State studying. Uh, uh, genetics, genetic engineering, and physics, and she convinced me that hey, you know what? Maybe you should, you know, take a class or something <laughs> to, to learn what you're doing because clearly you have no idea. And uh, so I did. I, I enrolled at a small community college uh, called Holy Cross in South Bend, Indiana. That's where I grew up, and uh, took courses there. I found uh, teachers, uh, an English teacher, who appreciated my writing skills and uh, encouraged me to, to compete in writing competitions and I found found brains I, did, I didn't know I had and, and I, I was so successful that I just transferred into Notre Dame uh, during my third semester and uh, spent uh, spent another four or five years there and graduated magna cum laude. But my, my first venture uh, uh, was a failure and, and I guess I'm kind of getting off course here on your original question. What I usually say to people is, uh, before you experience any success, you will experience failure. And and my the saying that I always like to say is, adversity is the price of wisdom, mm. and no one can teach you wisdom, right? So uh, wisdom kind of kind of falls into uh, something that my my father said to me uh, when uh, when I was in college. I was complaining about. Uh, not being able to find a, a job that appreciated my my intellect, you know, and I was a young kid, and no one wanted to hire me for my brain. They just wanted me for my hands. It was all manual labor type stuff. And he said something to me that stuck with me uh, for the rest of my life. Uh, he said, "You know, son, there's a lot of things that you don't understand about this world yet." Uh, he said, "Hunker down, learn to play the game, get wise." And then when you're ready, do what you were born to do. And that was actually the last thing he ever said to me. He, uh, he passed away a few weeks later. Of, uh, and uh, I was kind of mm. obviously stricken with uh, sadness there as a result of that. But, but those, you know, the last, the last uh, teachings, advice of a father to a son uh, has a way of being burned into your soul. <laughs> and it's, uh, it's a mantra that I've had uh, my entire life now, and I realize, looking back, that the reason that I failed at my uh, online publishing company was not because of you know uh, my competition. Uh, it was a small startup. Uh, you guys probably never heard of Amazon.com. Uh, it was because I was not wise. I was inexperienced. And I, uh, I was doing all the things technically correct, but there's something more to it than that. And and I get that now as a as an older man. Uh, I, 
uh, I like to think of much wiser men. It's quite clear you have general and specialized knowledge in what you do now. Uh, specialized knowledge that's sort of ridiculous. I, I don't think you and I could even talk about it in the same room. I would, my eyes would just cross. But, you know, you certainly have that, you know, in your study here. I'm imagining what people are now wondering, you know, about how did he do this, or how did he accomplish what he's accomplished now? You stood up at a conference, one of them, and, and you stood up when Kirkland was doing sort of a survey of how much money people make on a, uh, on a I think it was a monthly basis or something. And you stood up in the 30000 a month category at that time. And I know for some people in the room, their their brain exploded. <laughs> you know, like, it's like... What? <laughs> you know, how, how does one do that? How do you do? What is it you do? Uh, how do you do that? So, so you you know, here you are. You've got the specialized knowledge. The general knowledge is obvious. Uh, fitness, hello. Uh, <laughs> you know, fit. As you started to study with this, what did you discover about your own naivete? And how did it help you accomplish what you have now? Well, I think the, the main thing uh, was making me confront the reality of my chief aims, right? And when and, and you're absolutely right at the time, you know, 30000 bucks a month, I mean, that's there's a lot of people who don't do that in a year. Uh, when, when you have that kind of success at my age, the age that, that I started to get that, I was around, I think, tw- in my late 20s uh, when I started making real money. And uh, I had no idea what to do with it. And my naivete was really centered around this narrative that if I'm this successful now, wait till you see me at 40. And, mm-hmm. oh, boy, I'm going to knock the socks off. Sky's the limit. Uh, <laughs> it was such bullshit. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I was just, and I was just throwing money around. And I didn't care because I had so much of it. And... I didn't know how to really handle my success, and it, it was really an amateur thing to do, uh, and a really, really kind of stupid thing to do. I, I'm very fortunate that uh, that I uh, I found Influence Ecology because I think had I not confronted the reality of my my aims, I would probably be in a much worse position today, uh, probably worse than where I was in my late twenties. Even I, I would I would even speculate. Uh, you know, there was a, a bit of a fantasy lifestyle that I was living in, and boy, do, doing, I think it was, what was it, study paper seven in FOT really just kind of really twisted it, really stuck it and twisted it and broke it off for me. Yeah. Kind of made me wake up to the, wake up to the reality and, and, and kind of get my stuff together there. I love that you're saying this because, you know, study paper seven and study paper eight and the fundamentals of transaction program are really about thinking accurately about those aims for work, money, career, health, and, and many other aims. And it's it's our experience that as people go through the, the first couple of study papers in Fundamentals, that they, they take an accurate assessment. They often find out they're never going to accomplish what they hope to. They, they're never going to be able to make the kind of money that they hope to, or that if they continue to do what they do, they're going to labor themselves to death and, and so on. And that's the typical. For you, as you did that work, it, it's clear that you started to articulate your aims, but where did you find that you weren't thinking accurately? 
Was it just simply about, you know, blowing the money or was there something else about that? Well, I think uh, I, I think it was it was work, money, and career. Those those three together that that really kind of opened me up to uh, to uh, you know what I was missing out on. Uh, and and money being, I wasn't saving anything. I had no plan for the future whatsoever, other than get rich or die trying. Right? That's that, that was my plan. Uh, it, was, it, it was. It's funny how history repeats itself. It, it's very very similar to when I was a child and asking my father for a motorcycle. What do you mean? What's my plan? My plan was to ask you. <laughs> <laughs> kind of thing. Uh, I guess I'm. I was. I was still doing that all those years later. Uh, but. Uh, Career as well, uh, and, and I wasn't really taking advantage of that. And, and in hindsight, now I realize you know, I used to be one of those guys that, that poo pooed um, making uh, professional connections. Uh, and, you know, they call them networking. I hate using that term, networking, because it sounds so superficial. But, you know, Running into people who you encounter throughout your career, uh, through uh, through your work and, and and what you do for a living, uh, tends to you know you tend to accumulate a lot of good people if you work at it, uh, or you could just hang out with the same guys or you know or gals around the you know the office coffee pot for twenty years and and not really have a network of people that you could draw upon. I was fortunate that I was forced to to do that uh, just by virtue of the the type of work I was doing. And uh, when time came for me to uh, uh, to take the leap of faith, uh, I, I had I found I discovered by complete accident that I had an ecology, uh, and it caught me. Uh, and uh, the day <laughs> the day I quit my job from PwC, you know, it was one of those things. I I I actually I love telling the story too. It was, um, it was seven six or seven years into into PwC, uh, and I was very successful there. I, I had made manager at the time. I was up for director and I was the youngest manager uh, there. And I was at that point in my career where you really kind of have to make a choice uh, if you want to pursue the partnership at a firm like that or you know, you, you peel off and, and do something else. And I knew that and I was undecided. I, was, I sat in consideration for that for a long time. In fact, I gave myself two years to think about it. So I put a I put a, a, a notice in my BlackBerry in BlackBerry. Remember those two? Uh, I put a <laughs> put a calendar entry in my BlackBerry. And I gave myself two years to think about this decision because that's about when I would really need to uh, have a have a serious answer for it. And uh, two years later, it was uh, it was January fourth, two thousand ten. Uh, I walked into my office and at eight thirty in the morning, my BlackBerry buzzed, and I, and I thought, oh, who the heck is calling me at 8.30 in the morning. No one's up this early. <laughs> I'm the only one in my crew that uh, that keeps normal hours. And I looked at it and my BlackBerry said, sure, get off the pot. And I knew exactly what that was. That was the, it was the, uh, the notification I put in there two years earlier. Hmm. And I realized something in that moment. I realized that these two years had passed and I had not given this a single moment of thought. I had just kind of existed and continued more of the same. I was literally and figuratively in the same place. I had nothing to show for it. So I put my BlackBerry down, opened my laptop, and wrote my resignation letter. And I quit that day. I had no plan. I had, I had no money, uh, no job, no nothing. I just 
just up and quit <laughs> out of the blue, which was really stupid. And I know this sounds very romantic and Hollywood-ish, but don't do this. Do not do that. <laughs> yeah, it's going to say, thanks. No. Don't do that. <laughs> don't do that. Don't do it. Um, and uh, uh, a couple hours later, I, I got a call from an old friend of mine who I hadn't seen in, in several years, uh, who is now a, an executive at a, a very prominent uh, Fortune 50 company, no less. He said, I heard you quit. I said, what are you talking about, Joe? How did you hear this? Like, I, I practically just hit send on, on my email. He said, oh, you know, word, word travels around fast. He says, what are you, you going to do? I said, you know what, I don't, I don't really have a plan at all. Uh, I don't have a job, nothing. He said, well, until you figure that out, why don't you, uh, why don't you come and uh, work for me? Uh, you can uh, be an independent contractor for me until you figure out what you want to do, and uh, that will help bridge the gap between now and and uh, whatever your future may hold. And I said, sure, Jeff, but I got to warn you, I'm, I'm not cheap. <laughs> he said, all right, well, g give me a rate. And I, I named him a rate that was so outrageous. And I, I just, I was joking. I was making a joke. I expected him to laugh. And he said, sure, can you start on Monday? And I, and I realized what I had done. I had quit my job at 8.30. By noon, I had doubled my income. <laughs> so that was uh, that was the the genesis of what is now Level Nine, the consulting firm. I, I started my own firm, partnered up with other people, and I realized that you know I had taken a leap of faith, a very naive leap of faith, and I was lucky to have an ecology that was in a position to catch me, and they caught me, and. Uh, I, you know, I just have never, haven't looked back since then. You know, I realized something when I was writing that resignation letter. Those words that my father, the last words that he's told me kind of stuck in my mind. And I thought, you know what? I've learned to play the game. I have hunkered down and I am wise or wiser. And I think this might be what I was intended to do my entire life. All right. Well, I love listening to Troy's journey. In fact, there's so much more that we could share with you. Maybe we'll do that another time. We, we wanted to, as I said, give you access to a portion of our webinar led in October of 2015 by co-founder Kirkland Tibbles. This webinar is a focused lecture for our membership on the specialized study that Kirkland began almost 30 years ago, and it's the foundation for the curriculum of Influence Ecology. You could say that he is our guru. And in each podcast, we'll feature what I call a guru talk, a takeaway that we want to give you, a way to listen in to our webinars and our live conferences. In this talk, he outlines the fundamental background that underlies the specialized knowledge enjoyed by members around the world. In it, you'll start to hear for yourself why Troy Frost and so many others are thriving if you're around us for any length of time, you'll hear us say that our methodology has you come face to face with the behavior, the practices, and the naivete that has kept you from fully satisfying your work, career, and financial aims. We find that when people forget this fundamental background, they simply don't do as well as others who embody this knowledge. All right, let's jump into the fundamental background. What do we mean when we say that we are biological? Biological, well, all that that entails. John Dewey goes into uh, a description of the creature that we are, 
in the environments where we dwell and attempt to survive and to satisfy our conditions of life. And he is uh, he uses this term biological to represent all things that are physiological, psychological, and otherwise associated with being a human being, this creature that we are. What we tend to stress in our study is that human beings are creatures with a brain, and we talk a great deal about what it means to be a creature with a brain. Those of us uh, creatures on this particular planet who have brains have brains because we move. We study in the Fundamentals of Transaction program this little creature called the sea squirt. The sea squirt is a creature with a brain, and the reason that it has a brain is because it moves. But it doesn't move for long. The purpose of that brain is to get it located to a spot where it can attach itself forever and the first thing that the sea squirt does the minute that it attaches itself to its permanent location is it eats its brain. Why? Because it needs it no longer. So creatures that move require a system, a system to navigate, to order, to understand, and to exist in an environment. That's what we mean when we say that we are biological. We're a creature with a brain that's moving around in this particular environment, and we mean the natural, the planetary environment where we find ourselves, but we also mean that we, are, we remain biological even inside the constraints and the constructs that we have created socially and, and the physical constructs that we have, we have found ourselves and we place ourselves so that we can survive. We are biological. We are, and, and as a fundamental background, the first place that we go and we want to recognize for so many reasons that we are biological is because so many times people forget this. People forget. They, are, they become immune to and indifferent to the fact that human beings are a creature. We're going to talk about this at length here in a minute, but we want to stress that the most fundamental aspect of how we move around in the world is as a animal, as a creature, as a biology, in all that that entails. And so that's the first place that we start in this fundamental background. The next place that we want to stress and to emphasize is that human beings are linguistic. What does that mean? Well, it means that we live in narrative. We live in language. We are given by language. We are a creature with a brain with a highly advanced linguistic system. We communicate. We navigate. We order our environments linguistically. In fact, much of who we are as a biology is given by how well we are able to navigate the linguistic environment where we find ourselves, how we locate ourselves in particular narratives. We are linguistic, and it's critical, urgent, important, stress as we must, this narrative component of our own biology. So we are biological, and we are linguistic. And finally, fundamentally, we are creatures of reciprocation. We are social animals, and we are reciprocal animals. We are the biology that we are, living in a world of language, in story and narrative, and we must do it together. A human being left alone will not do well and likely will not survive. We cannot survive alone. 
even the most ambitious and knowledgeable uh, wilderness scout, John, is going to have a really tough time out there alone. No human being, naked and up against the, the natural environment, is going to do well as a creature out there. In fact, we're a pretty mediocre physiology. We don't do well against sharks alone. We don't do well against the natural elements. It isn't long, even though you can watch television shows where there's 400 crew members following one guy around, and he demonstrates how he can live alone, and God knows all the things that are going on. You know, that particular narrative is a demonstration of the kind of uh, naivete that people move around with all the time in the marketplace and in our environment. Human beings don't do well alone. We don't survive alone, and we certainly cannot thrive in our current environments alone. We must get help, and that's what we mean when we say we are transactional. We are reciprocal, co-constitutive element of our environments. We live in language, and fundamentally, we are a biology. And we start there because these are the most... Um, avoidable kinds of aspects that human beings tend to relate to. They tend to attempt avoid the kinds of narratives that they live in. They tend to excuse themselves from the fact that they are biological, and they rarely recognize that they are transactional. We are social animals. What does that mean? That means that we cannot exist alone. It means that we are uh, given by the social apparatus in which we attempt to satisfy our most basic wants and needs in life. We're reciprocal. We are, as Adam Smith calls it, the exchange animal. We are required by the very nature of our existence, the way that human beings have set up our structures, we are required to exchange. And how we reciprocate is imperative. How we reciprocate is critical if we are going to live in a kind of existence that is comfortable. We are reciprocal, and we are conditional. Human beings are highly conditioned creatures. We are conditional. We don't like to admit it. John, I was, I was in Denver, and we got into a conversation at the open training session there about just how conditional we really are. What I mean when I say we're conditional is that we, are, we move around in certain narratives and conditions of life. We, we exist in and we are concerned about conditions. And as Maslow teaches us in, in, uh, in the development of, of human motivation, as we begin to mature, we begin to recognize new needs and wants as more fundamental and basic needs and wants are satisfied. So in other words, as our health is satisfied, we have more access to other kinds of activity. As we gain more in terms of our relationship, we begin to expand our needs and wants. And as those needs and wants are expanded, other needs and wants begin to emerge in what we call higher conditions of life. Human beings are highly conditional. And we produce narratives, and we think in terms of narratives on a conditional basis. In our next episode, we interview Marcus Bell, a Los Angeles music producer. What I discovered in practice was sometimes I could focus on the things that would 
not advance me and my playing and get caught up in practicing things that were not going to be beneficial. Part of what I had to learn was what to practice. And sometimes it's the practicing of the basic thing is yeah. what will empower your performing at a very high level. If you'd like to know more about influence ecology and our approach, check out our webinar, Ambitious Living, The Eight Defining Principles. The webinar is available globally. We'll teach you the core principles practiced by the most successful and effective men and women we know. This webinar is for those who aspire to an influential life that provides measurable satisfaction for themselves, their family, and their organizations. This webinar is specifically designed for those who don't want to sacrifice a well-balanced life for superior financial rewards. They want it all. To find out more, you can find the link in the show notes for this podcast at influenceecology.com forward slash podcast. That's influenceecology.com forward slash podcast. Or in the U.S. or Canada, you can text the word AMBITION to 805-262-9008 and we'll send the registration link right to your mobile phone. Again, text the word AMBITION to 805-262-9008. Also in our show notes, you'll find all the links to websites, books, or special downloads mentioned in this podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please find us on iTunes and subscribe, review, like, and share. Help to get the word out and make this podcast a huge success. Thank you for another great episode of the Influence Ecology Podcast. I'm your host, John Patterson. I want to thank our guest for a powerful interview and great takeaways. This podcast is made possible by the good work of the Influence Ecology staff, mentors, and members around the globe. We're grateful for co-founder Kirkland Tibbles and his 30-plus years of specialized study and practice that make all this possible. And finally, thanks to our producer, Jason Kelly and Marcus Bell. 